God of the ages, we praise you for all your servants who have done justice, love mercy, and who have walked humbly with you. We praise you, O God, for all the apostles and the martyrs and the saints of every time and place who in life and death have witnessed to your truth and love. We praise you, O God, for all those who answered your call to preach the good news of the gospel and to administer your sacraments of grace and love, and for those who have devoted their lives to teaching your word and sharing the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures with others, whether it be at home or in foreign lands. We praise you, O God, for those who showed compassion to the least, who have fed the hungry, who have clothed the naked, who have welcomed the stranger and have offered mercy and forgiveness to those who have gone astray. We praise you, O God, for those who are willing to lose their lives in service to others, who care for the sick, comfort the dying, visit the lonely, console those in grief. We praise you, God, and we especially honor the memory of those individuals that are connected to us, those who we know that have been a part of this congregation, and those who were part of congregations in this place, in this building, years before us. We are grateful for those who have lived among us and share their faith in personal ways, who have finished the race and now reign on high with you. In addition, O God, we honor the memory of those who have graced our lives at other times and in other ways, those whose names we lift up before you in our hearts right now. In particular, we lift up before you with gratitude and thanksgiving these people. Hear our prayers, O God. For others we name before you both in our hearts and aloud. For all the saints from whom their labors rest, we praise you, O God. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. Amen. We have a children's sermon downstairs for anyone third grade and third through fifth grade. Yeah, thank you. Um, So make your way back to Pastor Hope, and you can head downstairs. Uh, We also have Bibles available for everyone fifth grade and above. So if you need a Bible, wave your hand. We have ushers here to make those available. We also have a couple in Spanish. So if that is your heart language and you want to read in Spanish, let them know, and we can grab you one as well. I'll be reading out of Mark chapter 10 tonight um, from the New Living Translation. So feel free to uh, find that in your Bible, or you can look at it on the screen. But I invite you to stand with me as we honor God's reading, the reading of God's Word together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, meaning son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man, cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. 
Immediately the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and so together we say, thanks be to God. So we are in a series on the saints, as we've already said. And I would love to show you pictures of the folks that I'm going to talk with you about tonight, but because of HIPAA laws and because of uh, confidentiality and anonymity, I have no pictures to show, but I have stories to tell. And their stories have been brought back to mind in recent weeks, not just because of this sermon series, but because about a month ago, I read this passage within a group of people that get together on a weekly basis, once a week on Mondays, to practice Lexio Divina together. And if you've not participated in that, it's just a slow reading of Scripture with lots of time for pause and meditation. And, and you're supposed to be listening for particular words or particular phrases, and then kind of take where this, go where the Spirit leads you to figure out what it is that you're supposed to be hearing in those words on those particular days. And yet, for me, on this day a month ago, uh, I wasn't really getting words. I was getting motions. <laughs> and maybe it's because I was in every drama and in every musical my high school ever put on, all four years. Or maybe it's because I just watch a lot of West Wing. But in this short description of this event, my mind gravitated toward the blocking of this scene. The way the people moved tells a story in and of its own. Good directors know how to do this. You can communicate incredible things, more than what's just in the lines, by how people move and who moves to whom and when they do the movement. And so in this story, here's, here's the, the blocking, here's the movements that stuck out to me. Okay, in center stage, Jesus is moving with the crowd. They're all moving together. And on the side of the stage, there's a person sitting, not moving, off to himself. And then the crowd stops, Jesus stops, center stage stops. And Jesus invites Bartimaeus into the middle. So then there's movement from stage right into center stage, and Jesus and Bartimaeus have a conversation in the middle of everyone else, right on center stage, and Bartimaeus is healed. Now the crowd and Jesus, who is center stage, is again moving forward, except there's no one left on the side. Bartimaeus, too, is moving front and center with Jesus, with the crowd. And to me, this tells a remarkable story. On this day that we celebrate Christ our King, I think we can take a moment here just to see what kind of King Jesus is. Because we are accustomed to leaders who rule by majority, not only the majority of votes to get into office, but also majority of public approval ratings and majority opinion regarding legislation or the economy or trade policy. But Jesus, it seems, doesn't operate this way. 
He had a large crowd of people traveling with him already, obviously happy with what he was doing, generally pleased with his leadership and the way their lives were going. Now, we know that that doesn't last forever. In a few short chapters, the crowd is wildly displeased with Jesus. But here, we get a hint as to how much the crowd revered Jesus because they even wanted to protect him from nuisance and interruption. Because when the crowd shushes Bartimaeus, I think it's safe for us to assume that they thought this is what Jesus wanted. They wanted to protect Jesus from the riffraff of their community. On the outskirts of Jericho, this man sat begging for money all the time, but the rest of the people didn't want Jesus to have to deal with that. And yet, as soon as Jesus acknowledges him, the crowd is suddenly on Bartimaeus' side, and they're saying, cheer up, cheer up, he's calling you. Either way, it seems that Jesus is unaffected by the adoration or expectation of the crowd because he's still able to hear, and he's allow him, he, he allows himself to be interrupted by a voice calling out from the sideline. He doesn't mind stopping himself. He also doesn't mind stopping the pace of the entire crowd that's traveling with him. He doesn't mind being the shepherd that leaves the 99 to tend to the one. And I also love that Jesus doesn't just stop and go have a conversation with Jesus on the side. He invites Bartimaeus to come to center stage with him. Someone in that Lexio Divina group several weeks back actually puzzled about this out loud and said, I, I just, I have a hard time because Jesus required him to make a move and really, you know, Jesus should have had compassion and gone out to him, which I understand. But as I was seeing this movement in my mind, I had a hunch as to why Jesus took this very specific action. I think that compassionate, genius Jesus found a way to give Bartimaeus agency, to give him freedom of choice. This blind beggar who had to be guided everywhere, who was shushed at, who had to rely on the charity of others, he now had the ability to go where he wanted to go and to respond to an invitation of his own. Jesus could have moved away from the crowd, had a private conversation with Jesus, healed him over there, and then come back to the center and move on walking with everyone else. In fact, maybe that's what have, would have made everyone else more comfortable. Let Bartimaeus come to, come to us when he's normalized. Let Bartimaeus come to us once he's fixed. But Jesus says, come, and then invites him into a conversation. Jesus honors Bartimaeus by this invitation and invites everyone else to see and engage with Bartimaeus. Their conversation and Bartimaeus' sudden ability to see his healing is now incredibly public. And it is here that not Jesus, but Bartimaeus 
is offered as our model for what it means to be a disciple, a person who walks this way of Jesus. Bartimaeus made some very bold faith claims that we might miss, but by calling Jesus repeatedly son of David, he was stating a messianic expectation and calling him something that many others all throughout the book of Mark are lost on. And then he has determination and persistence. He is told to shush, and he shouts louder. He trusts in the goodness of God, even when others may make him doubt it. He's not afraid to ask for what he needed. In fact, he was determined to ask for what he needed, and his determination reveals that he knew Jesus was the only one that could provide it. He calls Jesus his rabbi, even though this is what seems to be their first meeting. He had designated Jesus not only as this Messiah, son of David, but also his rabbi, my teacher, the one who I follow. And then he walked to Jesus, maybe stumbling. He walked on his own accord, not content only to have this conversation from a distance. And then Jesus says, after he's been healed, go. You may do whatever you want to do now. And Bartimaeus does not go back to the side of the road to continue to beg or go off anywhere else to show off his newfound ability to see. Instead, he uses his new sight and his new free agency to continue following Jesus, walking with Jesus along with everyone else. Bartimaeus models for us. He is our teacher in this text what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But he is far from the only one in Scripture, and he is far from the only one in all of human history who is found at the margins teaching the rest of us how to do this. We don't often encounter blind men sitting on the side of the road, but there are plenty of people to be found on the margins around us, right? Those on the margins are the ones who don't fit, the ones who have been pushed out of or can't keep up with the pace of mainstream majority moving down center stage. These are individuals with physical handicaps or those with learning disabilities or differences, individuals who constantly battle mental illness or people suffering under the oppression of addiction, men and women whose life experience just don't fit the normal script, persons of color. All of these and more are the voices that cry out to us from the sidelines. And all societies, all cultures, all institutions even, have expectations of what should be. And so this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's pretty typical human sociological behavior. And in fact, I have an anthropologist friend who I'm sure would tell us that this is actually for our own good. 
So it's fairly inevitable that there will always be some kind of mainstream majority in whatever culture or society or institution we find ourselves in. And it's then, therefore pretty much also inevitable that there's going to be those who drift to the margins in every culture and society and institution. But I don't think the question is necessarily how to keep people away from the margins. I think this is always going to be a part of human life on Earth as we know it in its current form. I think the question is for us, how do we respond to the people on the margin? When we hear their voices cry out from the side of the road, when we're traveling with the crowd, do we roll our windows up so we can't hear them? Or do we shush at them to not yell quite so loud? Or do we stop and listen to their story? I would propose for us that since Jesus, our King, allowed himself to be stopped by voices on the margin, not just in this case of Bartimaeus, but often, I would suggest that we should follow his practice. And as it is always when Jesus asks us to do something, it's not only for others' good, it is for our own good. Our brothers and sisters on the margin are not people to be pitied. In fact, I have witnessed pity as a kind of subtle and yet incredibly destructive way that we dehumanize people. Our brothers and sisters who can't keep up pace or who don't have lives that fit the rest of us are people to be listened to and cared for and to be learned from. And as we do this, we will undoubtedly gain more than we will ever give away. Because when we stop and listen, we find something surprising and miraculous on the side of the highway. And that is that we find new friends, models and mentors, teachers and wise sages who teach us what it means to walk this way of Jesus. And I personally learned a lot about this while I was in seminary. Not necessarily because of my coursework, but because of my paid work. For three and a half years, I worked as an aide for a young man with autism. His name was Joseph. Joseph was communicative and mostly able-bodied, although his speech was delayed and garbled. And his movements were slow and awkward, unless he was in trouble and he was trying to run away from you. And then suddenly he could move really well. I joined his care team as he was hitting puberty. 7th through 10th grade, and it was a wild ride. I learned a whole lot in those years. I learned a lot about special education. As a person who studied ministry and theology, it was an education that I never expected. Um, but I learned a lot about behavioral therapy and autism and the many misconceptions that people have about it. But I also learned a great deal about myself. And gratefully, I learned to allow Joseph to teach me and change me. For one thing, Joseph helped me remember how to play. I will never forget our first hour together. Um, you were assigned to, to, 
to join Joseph in his playroom when you joined the team, and there was a video camera recording you, and it was supposed to be really easy, and uh, you, know, you, you just kind of were able to watch your own interactions with Joseph as you tried to engage in his play. And as you may know, people with autism have a difficult time initiating contact with others, and so they're often content to stay in their own world for very long periods of time. And it was my job to find a way to enter into his play so that he could get to know me and learn to trust me. And let me tell you, watching the tape of our first hour together was painful. Joseph sat on the ground, moving his little beanie babies around, narrating a story that I could not understand at all. And I sat a safe distance away. Um, And once in a while, I would pick up another toy, and like I thought that I maybe understood the storyline, so I kind of would like try to get in there, and he totally didn't care, disinterested, and then I felt really silly for doing it, and so I backed away. I kept, I kept kind of a safe distance. I wasn't fully present. I will admit that to you. And he could tell it. I regarded him in those first hours as an oddity. I didn't understand. It was strange. I couldn't figure out how to relate. And he had no desire to engage me. Why would he? To be honest, if the roles were reversed, I wouldn't have either. I am very happy to report that after that first awkward hour, it was genius having me watch that tape because I hated it, things got much better between us. Not always easier, (laughs) but they did get better. By the end of our four years together, we had a shared language, shared language that very few other people would actually be able to understand, little phrases and inside jokes that meant absolutely nothing to anyone else. We played games together, we read books together, we went on trips together, not faraway trips, but like library trips. He tested every single boundary that I ever put in place, and at times, He made it all out war. But he liked me, and I liked him, and he trusted me, and he listened to me. But most importantly, I learned how to listen to him. Joseph taught me a lot about listening. He taught me how to listen not just to the words or the behavior of on the surface of a person, but how to listen deeper for the emotions and the fears and the desires and the confusion that laid underneath. Joseph taught me to be silly without feeling guilty and to enjoy the made-up world that he created for us and invited me into. And with Joseph, I found a new and absolute joy of being known and being trusted and being included in a world that so few others even knew existed. In the years of being Joseph's friend, which, as I said, also coincided with my years of seminary, two experiences that I think God totally ordained to happen at the same time, I learned a lot about this experience called being human. And of course, I have continued to learn because now I'm a parent, But what a a wide range of experience and abilities this thing called humanity holds for us. 
And I learned about this compassionate love of our Creator who honors all of it. I learned to see God's joy in Joseph's smile and hear it in his laugh. And even in the moments of frustration when I couldn't get Joe to do what he needed to do, when I couldn't get him to see reason, when the rewards that we had planned were not enough to motivate him, when I couldn't break into his world, I learned to recognize my own limitations. The walls that I put up to block out others and the times that I don't allow God to break into my world. And oh my, I learned a lot about grace. Giving it to him and receiving it from him. Giving it to myself and learning to receive it from God. My work with Joseph ended in 2009, but his lessons have continued to teach me. He has shaped the way that I pastor, the way that I mom, the person that I am. And he has taught me to look for and listen to and learn from many other models on the margins. A few years after working with Joseph, I joined the staff of a large church, and part of my job there was to be the pastoral presence to celebrate recovery. None of my friends in CR had physical disabilities, but they all know what it means to live life on the margin. Whether because of addiction to alcohol or meth, heroin or gambling or sex, whether they were seeking recovery from years of codependency or abuse or depression, my friends in Celebrate Recovery were the voices on the margin of our society calling out to Jesus for mercy. And oh my goodness. Did they model for me, and do they continue to model for me what it means to be a disciple? As I heard them say and watched them put into action the 12 steps of recovery, I was amazed and humbled. If you're not familiar, let me at least read to you steps 4 through 10. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That sounds terrible. Five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That sounds excruciating. Six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure ourselves or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Never before, never before had I witnessed such truth-telling as this. Never before had I seen people willingly engage in confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation as this before. Never had I seen or been around a group of people who wanted God so dearly that they would do all of this incredibly hard, painful, but healing stuff. They knew suffering 
in ways that I will never know suffering. But they have also known the love and the power and the healing grace of Jesus in ways that I have never known. And my time with them made me want to know more. I, I can't, I tried to put into words, can't describe in full the respect, the affection and admiration and gratitude I have for the friends that I walked with in those years. They have been my models and my teachers. And actually, in some ways, they have been models of discipleship for all of us at 8th Street Church. Because the words that we say together every week that Tim led us in tonight, we gather here to tell the truth. We do not have our lives together and on our own. We can't get them together. We are poor and we are hungry and we are thirsty for what we cannot provide ourselves. This is the truth-telling that I learned from my friends in recovery. And it's actually hard for me to call them marginalized because that doesn't fit their strength, their joy, their beautiful vulnerability, their passion, and their love. These aren't the ones on the sidelines who can't keep up. <laughs> These are the ones who get it. And this is when we realize that this thing about Jesus' kingdom is that there is a different goal altogether. There is a different pace altogether. There is a whole different way of getting to where we want to go than the way the world says. And so the ones who may be on the margins in the world's eyes are actually the ones right front and center, the ones who get it, the ones who lead the way. Because no longer are we judged by how much we can do or how good we can do it. But in this new way, we are judged by how quick and how able we are to receive. I think that this is what Jesus was getting at when he said those strange words about people being blessed because they are poor and hungry and meek and because they are mourning. In this kingdom, it's what it's our ability to receive that matters most. And so we need to hear the marginalized around us, not because they need the help, although that may sometimes be true. We need to hear them because we need the help. They have insights for us that many of us will never know. They recognize Jesus from afar, and they have the audacity to call out to him no matter how much other people try to shush them. And yet I realize this whole time, I've been talking in language that is they and us. That's usually how we talk about these things, right? We or us are the ones here, center stage, safe, healthy, normal. We are part of the mainstream majority that can do and go and be a part of things as they should be. And then there are they, the ones over there on the sidelines, the ones who are sick or in danger or abnormal or don't have the speed to keep up. But that's not really how it works, is it? 
I would guess that everyone in this room has felt marginalized at some point in our lives by one group or another. Some have been pushed to the margins in your workplace or in your classroom. Some have felt marginalized by society at large when they tell stories and we value things that are contrary to our own. And most tragically, others of us have been pushed to the side in the church when our problems were too big, when our needs were too much, when our questions were too risky, when our experience of God didn't match up to others' experiences of God. So if you find yourself feeling like you're sitting on the side of the road watching other people march through life, please hear this. You matter. And if at any time I have, or on behalf of our church, I can say if at any time our church has made you feel like you matter less, please forgive me. We, I need you. We need your perspective. Jesus, our King, hears you, and we want to hear you too. So please don't let anyone, including us, don't let anyone shush you. Okay? There is good news for us no matter where we find ourselves most comfortable on the sidelines or right in the middle. And the good news for all of us is that Jesus, our King, hears us. Each of us. He's not calculating percentages, looking for how the majority is, is doing and then responding in that way. He cares about individual stories, willing to give attention and action to each one. One of my favorite authors is Henry Nouwen, who was a Catholic priest and professor, speaker, and prolific writer. And at the height of his career in about the 1970s, early 80s, he responded to God's invitation to live in a community of disabled people and their caregivers called Larch. And he writes of his experiences with incredible candor, simplicity, and conviction in many of his books. And I would like to read a short excerpt from his book, The Road to Daybreak. Jesus' life is marked by an always deeper choice of what is small, humble, poor, rejected, and despised. The poor, somehow, are the preferred dwelling place of God, and thus they have become our way to meet God. And handicapped people are not only poor, they also reveal to us our own poverty. Their primal call is an anguished cry, Do you love me? And why have you forsaken me? And when we are confronted with that cry so visible in those people who have no capacity to hide behind their intellectual defenses, we are forced to look at our own terrible loneliness and our own primal cry. We hear this cry everywhere in our world. Jews, people of color, Palestinians, refugees, and many others all cry out, why is there no place for us? Why are we rejected? Why are we pushed away? But Jesus, 
has lived this primal cry with us. My God, my God, he says, why have you forsaken me? He who came from God to lead us to God suffered the deepest anguish a human being can suffer, the anguish of being left alone, rejected, forgotten, abandoned by the one who is the source of life. But Jesus came to reunite, to heal, to form bonds, to reconcile. He shared our anguish so that through our anguish we would be able to find the way back to God. Jesus descended to ascend. As Philippians said, he emptied himself. He was humbler yet even to accepting death, death on a cross. And for this, God raised him high and gave him the name which is above all other names. And this is the truth. This beautiful, messy, complicated, sometimes unforget, un- uncomfortable and glorious truth. This is what we celebrate when we come to this table together. When we share this meal provided by our King who broke his body open for us and poured out his blood for us. We remember not only to listen to those on the margins, but to find our King there as well. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, remember me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Whenever you drink, of, drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Friends, the table here is not 8th Street table. It's not the Church of the Nazarene's table. This is Jesus' table. He is our host. And anyone who wants to receive what Jesus has to offer is welcome here. We want no barriers, so know that our bread is gluten-free and the cup is non-alcoholic. We'll invite you to come out of your aisle here and come with your hands open to receive the bread and dip it into the cup. Listen to what these servers have to tell you and rejoice in the words that you hear. If for any reason you can't make it down our aisle, just flag Justin over here and he will come and serve you. And as you are ready, friends, to receive and to rejoice in receiving, you are welcome. Please come.